a siesta, have a bit of a kip and uh, chill out. So uh, I'll give you an opportunity to close your eyes in a minute uh, as we watch a clip up on the screens. But just before we go there, um, just to again, just create the context for what we're exploring and, and what we're considering. So, uh, you know, the what if question, what if the normal Christian life was something more than we could ever have imagined? What if the normal Christian life is actually to go on a journey of discovery to become like Jesus in every way? What if the Christian life, the normal Christian life, was to be somebody who released supernatural power? What if Peter and John's engagement with the lame man uh, at the temple was the normal Christian life, where Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but that which I have I give unto you. What if the normal Christian life is to, to really know what we have and, uh, and to release that? And then going on from there, that if that is not our experience, if not, why not? And so uh, one of the, if not, why nots that we've found amongst ourselves is that we had to go on a journey of discovery about our identity to actually understand what had taken place when we were born again, what happened in our spirit, the new creation miracle that has taken place and that we now have a, uh, a choice to make between the identity that's been created out of our human history and the identity that's been created out of being born of God. And so as we've uh, considered whether we are releasing supernatural power, if that is the normal Christian life, the if not, why not question that we've already considered is where am I living from? What identity am I drawing from? This afternoon, uh, I'm wanting us to look at another if not, why not? And, and that is, what if the normal Christian life actually assumed that we were all disciple makers? That we actually took responsibility before the Lord that I am one who makes disciples. It's not the church's responsibility, but it is something that Jesus is asking me to do. And as a disciple maker, what would that look like? What would I have to reevaluate? What would I need to look at? And so to help us begin that sort of conversation, why don't you put your eyes uh, up on, I, I call it a screen, but I guess it's just a wall, isn't it? And, uh, and watch this clip. Thanks, guys. Hello. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, nice to meet you. Uh, what's the apps called? Uh, Charlotte and Jonathan. Charlotte and Jonathan. Okay. Um, how old are you both? I'm 16. I'm 17. Okay. Um, and, and you thought the combination would work. Whose idea was it? Um, it was our singing teachers, actually. She thought it'd be good to try us out together. <laughs> and we both sounded quite good when we sang what we did. Okay. You're not saying much, Jonathan. <laughs> are you shy? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> I've always had sort of problems with my size since I, I can remember. And when I was in sort of primary school, it was back then really that I had sort of the mick taken out of me and it, it kind of damaged my confidence quite a bit. When, when people would say something to me, I'd just, it'd just take a little piece out of me in a sense. I'm quite protective of Jonathan, like, if someone, if I was there and someone stood there and said something to him, I wouldn't sit, I couldn't sit there with my mouth shut. Before you make a judgement on someone, I think you really need to get to know them, it's not it's cliches, it's not judging a book by its cover, you've got, you've got to read what's inside. Charlotte's been a really big help for me in terms of confidence and making me a better performer and I really don't think I'd be going up on stage today if I didn't have Charlotte by my side. And do you think you could win? Yeah, together. Yeah. Alright, good luck. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
Here we go. like that you sing beautifully together it was world class thank you very much thank you a pop voice and an opera voice together it was incredible okay this is what i think as charlotte i think you're good but jonathan you are unbelievable You have an outstandingly good voice. Thank you very much. How old are you? 17. I mean, that's unbelievable. Jonathan, you are a future star. Thank you. I like the fact that this works as a duo, but I worry, Charlotte, whether you're going to hold him back. We've come on here as a duo, and we're going to stay here as a duo. Okay, David, we better vote, yes or no? Oh, 
such an easy decision, yes. Thank you. Definitely a yes from me. Charlotte, I think your voice complements Jonathan's really well, so don't be disheartened. It's a yes from me. You know, my head here would say... something kind of magical at moments together as well. So, I'm going to say yes to the two of you. You've got four yes. He's like a young Pavarotti, that yeah. boy. I haven't heard a voice yeah. like that in years. No. To be that young and that good. Simon's a massive fan of you, <laughs> isn't he? Seems like it, yeah. That is the biggest response we've had today. Well. Oh, my God. Oh, oh dog, my pal. Do you think it could be life-changing? Life-changing? Well, yeah, to be honest. I think yeah. for you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what are the lessons that we can take away from Charlotte and Jonathan? The, the reality is that Jonathan had the better voice. Um, you know, Charlotte missed a number of notes on the way through, and yet the only reason that Jonathan was on the stage was because of Charlotte. He openly admits that, and without her encouragement, without her uh, ability to draw the best out of him, he would never have ended up on the stage. And then equally coming back the other way when Simon Cowley is a little huff on uh, Charlotte, Jonathan defends her and says, well, we're here together, we came on together and we're going to continue together. And for me, this is just such a wonderful picture of what it is to be a disciple maker. It's a wonderful picture of how two people go on a journey together and they help one another, they disciple one another. Uh, the word disciple means to be a learner. And so they're helping one another to learn things. They're discovering together what it is to be able to sing so well. And, uh, and in all of that, it's a, a great picture for us that we are called to do the same thing. We are called to come alongside of other people and, and often people who are outside of the faith. Not just people who are inside of the church, but people who are outside of the faith. And that our role is to come alongside of them and to help them make many, 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 many decisions until they get to a very important decision called inviting Jesus into their life, but then to continue to walk with them to help them make further decisions to follow Christ. And, and as we think about this whole idea that that's, Jesus asked us all to do this, Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and make disciples. He was speaking to individuals. He wasn't speaking to a church organization and so for us what if the normal christian life was more than we could ever have imagined one of the if not why nots for us is that we've had to rediscover together the truth that it is my privilege my joy to be somebody who makes disciples and starts with them at somewhere out near minus eight minus seven and help them to get to minus six, to minus five, to minus four, until they get to zero where they invite Christ into their life 
and then I continue to help them go to one and to two and to three and to four. And one of the reasons, you know, why we have lost sight of this great privilege, of this opportunity to be a disciple maker is because uh, it, I would want to suggest to you one of the problems is, is that for the last 400 years, the church has been answering a theological question that goes something like, what must I do to stay true to the faith and go to heaven? And so it's come out of a commitment to the gospel of salvation, which I celebrate. But Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we find that Martin Luther was upset that the Catholic Church was requiring certain things of people to say that they needed to do them to get to heaven. And he was reading the scriptures and he saw that entry into heaven was by grace. And so we have the Reformation that begins and takes place. But in all of that, the Reformation was really answering a question around getting to heaven. What must I do to get to heaven? What must I do to stay true to the faith? and get to heaven. And so since that time, the church, I think, has predominantly been answering that big theological question. What must I do to stay true to the faith and go to heaven? And so a lot of the messages that we hear, a lot of the encouragement that we receive, which is all wonderful and important, I'm not in any way wanting to run it down, but it tends to focus on our behavior and it tends to feel like the church as an organization expects a certain culture, expects a certain sort of behavior for us to be in, and then there are other behaviors that cause people to be out. And in all of that, we uh, feel that we have to bring people to a church service, or we have to bring them to some sort of outreach event where they will then make a decision. And at that point, we hand their care, their disciple-making, over to a group of new Christian counsellors that are supposedly trained and able to lead people further on in their faith. But the problem with, with all of this for me, as I consider what is it that is the normal Christian life, is that this is not what Jesus asked of us. He didn't ask us to bring people to church to be converted. He asked us to make disciples of people. And so what we've inadvertently done is create what I call a decision-making culture. We've got a culture inside of our understanding of what it is to live the normal Christian life where we are, the, the big deal for, for us is to get people to make a decision to follow Jesus. But the reality is that there are hundreds of decisions that people make before they make that decision to follow Jesus. And there are hundreds of decisions that we make after we make that decision to become like Jesus and to keep following him. And yet we've put such an emphasis down on this one question about will you ask Christ into your life that we have created cultures in churches that I think disempower God's people from the great privilege, the great opportunity, and dare I say it, even the responsibility that we have to disciple people. And so we have lost sight of the fact that that the Lord is actually asking us to be disciple makers and that the normal Christian life is all about us following the leading of the Holy Spirit, understanding the presence of God, carrying the presence of God in our daily lives so that those around us benefit from what we know and what we have and we actually help them not only to discover the wonder of Jesus by coming to faith, but we then continue to help them to discover the wonder of Jesus after they have come to faith. And so we, as, as disciples of Jesus, because this big theological question 
has pointed us towards behaviour, we talk a lot about discipling our converts, whereas I think that Jesus actually converted his disciples. We get caught up in thinking that the, uh, the normal Christian life is about getting people to behave right, because the question that we've been answering is, what must I do to stay true to the faith and go to heaven? It's a behavioural orientated question. And it's where Martin Luther started the conversation. And unfortunately, I don't think he ever intended for it to be taken the way that it has by the church. But it has created this place where God's people, I feel, have been disempowered by church culture. And we have given away this incredible privilege, this great opportunity to make disciples personally. And we've given it to the church. And so here, Jonathan and Charlotte, whilst they have a music teacher who put them together and gave them an opportunity to sing on the stage. It was actually Jonathan and Charlotte are discipling one another in the process. And so, if you like, I as a pastor, Chris, others who stand behind a pulpit, those of us who lead churches, our role is to give people a context in which to actually live out this extraordinary opportunity to make disciples. We are not meant to take that away. The music teacher is not the disciple maker. The music teacher is the coach. And so we, we begin to see the possibility. What would it be like for you? What would it be like for me to actually allow the Holy Spirit to lead me to a person of peace, to lead me to a person who is actually interested in the things of God, and that I would then, before the Lord, take responsibility to be led by the Spirit, to be empowered by the Spirit, to know what I have to give away, and that I would walk alongside of that person. I would be there for them when they are sick. I would be there for them when they go through crises. They may not yet be in the faith, as it were, but I am being there as a friend, and my role is to actually convert them towards who God is. And so when we look at Jesus... Jesus was actually in the process of converting his disciples, not discipling his converts. We don't really know where the disciples became Christians. We don't know at what point they actually were born again. There's a whole bunch of theological discussion about it, but nobody really knows the answer to that question. What happened was that these men and these women started to gather around Jesus because he was so attractive. And as we learn to live the normal Christian life in a way that releases supernatural power, we become attractive to other people and they want to gather around us. But as they gathered around him, Jesus wasn't so much trying to get them to behave right as much as he was trying to get them to believe right. And one of the reasons why people don't like the church is because we're constantly telling them that they're not behaving right. And we tell them that they're not behaving right and they don't get it because we haven't helped them change their beliefs. The reality is that behavior is always the echo of belief. And so the 12-step programs, they understand this truth and they are working with people's belief to try and get their behavior to change. Paul, when he wrote the letters to the New Testament churches, he always began with what they believed. He always begins with theology. So the book of Ephesians has three chapters of theology and then it has three chapters of Christian behavior. But because we've been answering this question, what must I do to stay true to the faith and go to heaven, we've got so uh, caught up with how people behave, and we personally have got caught up with, I just need to hang on to get out of here, rather than to think, I'm actually here on the earth for heaven to invade earth through me. About 30 years ago, 
a guy called John Wimber turned up in the kingdom of God and he started asking another question. His big theological question was, what must I believe for heaven to invade earth from me? He, he began to change the perspective of what it is to make a disciple. And if you make a disciple answering the first theological question, what must I do to stay true to the faith and go to heaven, you end up with a fundamentally different person to if you're answering the question, what must I believe for heaven to invade earth from me? And so John Wimber was interested in this issue of belief. And this is the issue that Jesus was interested in. And so a woman is caught in adultery. Her behavior is questionable. But, but Jesus didn't go after her behavior. He went after the belief of everybody in the crowd. And then he went after her belief. He didn't even address the behavioral issue. He addressed the belief issue. And we find this again and again and again with Jesus. And so Jesus, with his disciples, he's converting their thinking from God being a judge to God being a father. One of the primary things that Jesus did while he was here on the earth was to talk to his disciples constantly about the fact that God is no longer living as a judge. He actually wants to live with you as a father. He was converting their thinking because they saw God as a judge. We see this when James and John are upset because a village won't let Jesus walk through it. And they say, let's blow them up, Jesus. Let's just destroy them all. And so they've got this attitude of God as a judge. And when people reject God, they get blown up. That's the Old Testament image. I'm quite impressed that they actually thought they could blow them up. At least they're a little bit further along than us that they could release supernatural power. Unfortunately, they were just releasing it for the wrong reason. And so Jesus says to them, listen, you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with the supernatural power bit, but I'm not so sure about your motivation. You don't know yet what spirit you're of. He's basically saying, you still haven't grasped the fact that we are now working with a father who loves people. We are no longer working with a judge. Jesus was converting their thinking about being natural people to being supernatural people. They get in a boat with Jesus. They're going to the other side. A storm blows up and they panic. Jesus is asleep because he said, we're going to the other side. He knew what was going, that they were going to get there. They wake him up. He speaks to the storm. And then he turns to them and he says, I don't get it. I thought you would know by now that you could have stilled the storm. He says, where was your faith? I, I thought that I would have helped you change what you believe about yourself, that you no longer think naturally, you think supernaturally. You no longer think about the elements dominating you, but you realize that you serve the God of heaven and earth and you can dominate the elements. And so he's, he's speaking to them about what they believe. We find the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is converting what they believe. He's converting them away from religion. You've heard it said, but now I say. He's taking them away from religion and he's drawing them towards relationship. And so Jesus' uh, response to his disciples was to convert their thinking, was to help them change their mind about certain things. And so as he takes them on this journey, he's actually trying to help them to believe right. And so John Wimber, what must I believe for heaven to invade earth through me, begins to get the equation around the right way. And so for us, our behavior, because it's always an echo of belief, God is wanting to convert what we think. He's always interested in what's going on in our thinking. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is the good and acceptable 
will of God. And so you will find that the Holy Spirit's interest is in changing how you think about God and how you think about yourself and how you think about others. And he is interested in getting us to think according to the word. And so if that's how he works with us, then our privilege is to walk alongside of people and convert the way that they think about God. And so we're not to get upset with same-sex orientated people's behavior because we just end up pushing them away. I, the Pope came out the other day. I love the current Pope. He's just, he's got, from what I can see, he's got incredible theology, mainly because it's like mine. But anyway, um, but, but he said to the Catholic Church, we have to stop being obsessed with same-sex marriage and with abortion issues. What he's really saying is that if people don't have faith in God, they won't have the same value system that we have. If we keep pointing to their behaviour, we will just alienate them and push them away because they don't think like we think. I can remember before I came to faith, I didn't understand the whole issue of being, you know, abortion and, and life and what it means to God. It just seemed like it was a part of the way that the world in which I lived. And so, so what happens when Christians jump up and down about behavior, trying to defend God's morality, all we do is that we push people away. People were drawn to Jesus because of his love and their acceptance of them. I, just because I accept somebody doesn't mean that I condone what they are doing. But at the end of the day, they will change their behavior as they change their belief. They're not going to change their behavior because I tell them that it is wrong. They're going to change their behavior because they feel loved by me and they start to meet the God who dwells inside of me. And as they meet that God, they change. That's what it was like for me. I came to faith and I used to drink too much alcohol. I used to swear too much. My behavior changed as I met this God who loves me and my beliefs changed about life and what was important and so my behavior followed. And so for us, when we think about the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life is about being around pre-believing people and being the love of God to them, being the light of the world to them, releasing supernatural experiences to them that they would encounter uh, the God that we serve. And this is how Jesus did it. He was constantly releasing encounters with the Father. He didn't ask them to make a decision at that point. He just released power to them. And they got healed and they got delivered of demons and they felt forgiven by him. And out of that, he just anticipated that they would be drawn towards him. And so as we begin to take on board the, the, uh, the truth that it is my privilege, my opportunity, and dare I say it, my responsibility to make disciples, to, to, to be involved in making disciples. How do I do that? Well, we create, we need to create in our churches a disciple-making culture more than a decision-making culture. That we actually are saying to one another, I want to help and inspire you to be one who makes disciples. Not just to get people to make a decision to follow Christ, as though that's the pinnacle of the Christian life. But I actually want to keep introducing you to how wonderful and majestic and awesome this God is. And that I am confident that I can do that because I know the Holy Spirit. I've come to know who I am in Christ. And I come to understand who God is. And that God actually wants to make himself known to the people around me as well. And so we end up then in this zone where we are actually empowering one another through relationship, through heart relationships, to bring people to faith. The old theological question has tended to create a functional way of doing church. 
we, we do it out of, uh, out of the positions that we hold and we think certain people can do certain things and it loses the heartbeat of God. It loses the life and the love of God. And so part of the, the journey for us as a congregation is that we've had to really step back and look at this whole issue of seeing people come to faith and, this, and, and begin to, to question if the normal Christian life is that Jesus said to me to go and make disciples. Am I prepared to step into that? Am I prepared to be the sort of person who learns to love like Jesus loved? Am I prepared to be the sort of person that releases power like Jesus releases power freely to people out of compassion, not because they're behaving right? Am I prepared to pray for the same-sex orientated person who has AIDS and see them healed and then expect nothing else of them other than that I am still their friend? Am I building friendships on the basis of other people's behaviour or am I building friendships because they seem to be a person of peace that is prepared to have conversations with me that I want to hear their story? Tell me your story. Tell me why it is that you believe these things about God because everybody has a belief about God. They're all on a faith journey. Some people are just on a faith journey away from God and others are on a faith journey towards Him. But, but to actually honour their story and to value their story and to stop making decisions about people on the basis of their behaviour, that we would walk away from that, recognising that because we've eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we find it very easy to be critical and judgmental of people. But when we are critical and judgmental of people, we cannot love them. It is oil and water. If you're criticising someone, you can't love them. And so we begin to discover the heart of compassion that Jesus has for everybody because we realise that we have an opportunity to help people change the way they think about God because of who we know we are, the love that we have experienced from God and the desire for us to bring people to that place. Jonathan and Charlotte are just such a wonderful example of two people helping one another become great in what they dream about doing. There are people all around you that are people of peace. There are people around you who are interested in your journey and your discovery of who God is, but they will be drawn because of your love for them, not because of your comment on their behaviour. They'll be drawn as you want to understand their journey and not just expect them to understand your journey. It's about realising that God is actually drawing people towards himself and that it is my privilege and my opportunity to be a part of that journey, not just to them, to the point that they make a decision to follow Jesus, but then to help them continue on beyond that. As I come to a close in this session, I I just want us to take the opportunity to think about the people that are around us. There are people in your life right now that I believe God has put there because they're people of peace. I believe that they actually are interested in your love for God. They're interested in your experience of God. And I believe that the Lord wants you to be interested in them as well, to be interested in their experience of God, and that you would actually see yourself as a disciple maker who's helping people make multiple decisions to come to faith and their multiple decisions to be like Jesus. And so for as we think about these people, and uh, yeah, come and join me, guys. Very good. Um, As we think about these people... I want you to start to explore the possibility that you from this day on could live your life as a disciple maker. That you are not thinking that you have to get somebody to come to church to make a decision to follow Jesus, 
But you could actually lead them to faith over a, in a coffee shop. You could lead them to faith in your lounge room. You could lead them to faith as you're walking alongside of a river. And that you would then be confident that you are called by God. You have something to offer them that you can continue to help them become disciples. There is some value in having, you know, some classes for people to go to, but you would go to those classes with them. You wouldn't just abandon them and hand them over to somebody else. You have had the privilege of giving birth to this person into the kingdom of God. And when we give birth to our own natural children, we don't then hand them over to somebody else to look after. We have others around us that help us look after them, but we feel a sense of privilege and opportunity to continue to lead them on. I just think that the possibility of the kingdom expanding virally lies before us. Because as we see ourselves like this, we are, we are then aware that the Spirit is at work everywhere. He's not just at work in a church building. We need to realize that this is the locker room. It is not the game. This, you know, I support the Arsenal Football Club in, uh, in England. And if I went to the Emirates Stadium and uh, went to watch my team play against Manchester United, and I'm excited about them beating Manchester United 4-1. I'm happy for Manchester to score one goal. And, uh, and so I'm there, and Manchester United come out onto the pitch, and then I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting and with everybody else, and Arsenal doesn't turn up because they think the game is in the locker room. Everybody would think well, they were nuts. But that's how we tend to live our lives. We tend, this is the locker room. This is not the game. The game is out there. Jesus has called us to bring his life to the world in which we live. And so we are meant to, in this place, we get encouraged and we learn and we discover, just like Arsenal does in the locker room. But then the great joy is to go out on the pitch and whoop the other team. And we go out on the pitch to whoop the devil. We go out on the pitch to win people to faith. We go out on the pitch to play the game of what it is to be Christians, to have a spirituality that is so attractive to the world that they can't help themselves but want to know about it. Let's all stand together as we come to a close this afternoon. And I want you to think about who is it in your world right now that the Lord might want you to help convert their thinking towards a loving God. Not change their behaviour. Let's stop thinking about changing everybody's behaviour. Let's just think about introducing them to the love of God, to the life of God, because that's what Jesus did. And then to ask the Lord, Lord, how would I be spirit-led to actually love this person, to draw alongside of them? How would I do life with them? How could I help them to see what I have seen without demand, without expectation? And how could I take interest in their life to hear their story, to actually want to know their story, to be involved in their story? So, Father, right now as we come to a time of reflection, as we come to a time of consideration, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see that we have the great privilege and opportunity of making disciples. Help us, Lord, to accept that this is our privilege, our opportunity. Lord, to embrace those around us, the people of peace that you have brought to us. And that, Lord, we would just have the great joy and privilege of converting the way they think about you, not trying to change their behavior, but helping them to think about you as a wonderful, majestic, awesome, loving Father 
hearts up, Lord, to those around us. Open our hearts to them, Lord, and help us to love them, to speak well of them, to cry with them, to laugh with them, Lord, to just be there with them. Pray for them today, Lord. We lift them up to you and we ask, Father, for those that are around us, those we're thinking of. We ask, Lord, that you would help them to see what we've seen. Help them to know what we know. Help us, Father, to step into the place of doing life with them in a way that is so attractive that they can't help but be drawn to you. to them. Lord, help us to feel your heartbeat for those that we're thinking of, those that are coming to our hearts and our minds right now. Just release, Lord, I I just release over us, Lord, an understanding of your compassion. No longer criticizing and judging their behavior, but feeling your compassion for blessed today, Lord. We want them to be favoured. We want them, Father, to know you as we know you. Thank you. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit, just you yourself, just invite the Holy Spirit. Help me to be a disciple maker. Lord, I want to take up this great privilege and opportunity and so I invite you into my world. Help me to see myself as a disciple maker. Believe right about being a disciple maker. 